Um, you can see how much of the book we've done, but it's not about quantity, it's about quality. So hopefully by going into these topics in depth, it's really making you think, yeah, uh, because that's the purpose. It's not just to get a lot of information. It's uh, for things to really uh, affect you so that it changes how you live your life and it helps you become a better person and to solve your problems and to make a positive contribution to the world. So that's why we're here. Okay. So quite different than a university course. Yeah. Although sometimes I wonder if we should have tests, if it might keep you more awake. <laughs> Only one person is it? <laughs> okay. Um, the scene that we're that we're in, the Buddha's in front, surrounded by the sentient beings. So guide yourself through creating the visualization and through uh, really, you know, generating this feeling that you are in the presence of the holy beings. And you're also in the presence of all sentient beings. And, you know, everybody kind of has hope for you. And if you want to really challenge yourself, between you and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you visualize all the people you don't like, all the people you don't get along with, the people you can't stand. So to see the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in front of you, you have to see the people that you don't like. They're facing the Buddha too, so they're taking refuge. But you can't ignore them, okay? Because they're sentient beings too. Let's cultivate our motivation. If you live in a place like the Abbey where you have clear nights and can see the stars, look when you look out at the stars, instead of just thinking, oh, stars, and leave it at that, think of all the living beings that live in those various solar systems. Countless living beings. Some maybe we can detect with our senses. We have the, the required scientific equipment. Some maybe we can't detect with our senses. But they're all living beings wanting happiness and not suffering.
and in different lifetimes, we have been close to all of them. So even though we're in different bodies now, they're in different bodies. We actually have known each other, the previous continuities of our mind streams. In different rebirths, we've been each other's parents and best friends and so on. And although we can't remember it, they've all been kind to us. And if we use the example of how people in this lifetime have been kind to us, then it's easy to generalize to all those other sentient beings in different life forms, when we too have been in a different life form and known each other, and how kind they've been to us. And it's important that we let that kindness into our own hearts. That we allow ourselves to feel that we have been and still are the recipients of a tremendous amount of kindness from other living beings. And when we reflect on the various kinds of ways they've shown kindness to us, automatically they appear very dear and lovable in our eyes. They appear as beings who we have been close to. And so we want to repay their kindness. Not repay kindness because we owe it to them, but to be kind in return, just as they have been kind to us. And with that kind of view of other living beings, then it becomes easy to wish them to be free of suffering and to have happiness. And that love and compassion can then spur us to want to attain full awakening so we can really do something to contribute to their welfare long-term and in the highest way. And so we generate the bodhicitta and make that our motivation for our entire life and especially 
for sharing the Dharma today. So it seems like in the days of COVID, many people feel lonely, they feel cut off, uh, they feel, yeah, cut off, uh, not engaged with others, not having human relationships. If you do this meditation on the kindness of sentient beings, you never feel like that. So, so often beings are kind, being kind to us, and we can't see it. Or even if we can see it, we can't let it into our hearts. We block it in some ways. Yes, they were kind, but they also did X, Y, and Z, or they didn't do A, B, and C. And that stuff that they did or didn't do that we don't like completely walls us off from letting their kindness uh, into our own hearts. Yeah. So we're blocking the reality of sentient beings' kindness. Yeah, we're not seeing things accurately. So, yes, sometimes sentient beings have been obnoxious. What else is new? Yeah, we've never been obnoxious. But even sometimes when uh, they're trying to help us, we get irritated with them and think they're being obnoxious. But they aren't. They're actually trying to help but we can't see what they're doing as helping. Okay, we see what they're doing as irritating because we want help in exactly this way. Okay, and they're giving us help in another way according to what they think is good and according to their own talents and so on. But we don't like being given help that way. Yeah. If you're going to love me, if you're going to help me, you do it like this. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah? So here people are pouring out affection, and we have criteria that we judge them by. If they're being kind enough, if they're being affectionate enough, if they're doing what we want or not doing it, So it really struck me one time uh, when my grandmother, who was, I don't know, she was probably 70-something, 80-something at that time, and she told my dad, who was, you know, maybe 20 years younger than her, uh, so he was old enough, And she reminded him to put on a sweater so he didn't catch cold when he went outside. 
Okay, now you're 60 years old and your mother still tells you to wear a sweater. Okay, and you get mad. My dad didn't, okay? But most of us would like, come on, give me a break. I'm old enough to do what I want. Why are you nagging me like I'm still six years old? But what we're not seeing is that they care about us. And in our parents' eyes, we are always that adorable child who needs protection and love. And that's just what they're trying to show us. But we don't want to be treated like that. (laughs) Yeah? Or we're working with a colleague and, uh, you know, on a project, and they help, but they aren't doing it exactly the way we want it done. And they're actually, they don't know it, but they're supposed to read our minds and know exactly how we want this done and do it exactly that way. So because they maybe do it their own way or in the time frame that makes sense to them, then we get annoyed without seeing that they're actually trying to help us. Okay? So we have to, you know, look at our own lives and our own reactions to people in different situations. And when we do, we see how very often we cut ourselves off from connecting with them. We're the ones that block feeling their affection. Not that they're not giving affection. So then the question comes, yes, but when I'm an adult and they're still telling me what to do and what not to do, it drives me crazy. Well, just ignore it. That's what I did, you know? I would get all these remarks. And especially, can you imagine your daughter growing up to be a Buddhist nun? I'm sure I got more remarks than your parents gave you, those of you who are lay people, okay? I got lots of stuff. So I just, yeah. It's like, there's no use reacting to it. Although one time, I must say, my mom was getting on my case for something. I can't even remember what now. But getting on my case for not doing something that I thought was ridiculous. And uh, and then I just said, well, mom, I'm really sorry you just have a dum-dum for a daughter. And that stopped the whole conversation. <laughs> You know? And then we went on to talk about other things. So it's like we have, they're trying to be kind in a way. We don't have to bite the hook. Yeah. We don't have to follow everything, all the advice. We, we don't have to act like we're still 16, though. Yeah. And we can just say, thank you very much. And ignore it. Yeah? 
Because I think what really matters to us and to them is the feeling of connection. Yeah. And I was reading something not long ago, you know, a study about how many people who are um, estranged from their families for one reason or another. Yeah. And uh, that happened to me when I ordained. They kicked me out of the house and didn't talk to me for years. Um, so whether you're the one being kicked out or you kick out your parents or other, other relatives, um, you know, if you really think about that they're mortal and you're mortal and we're all going to die, do you really want to go through your life holding grudges? Yeah. That doesn't mean you need to be best friends with somebody if the trust has been broken. But you can be polite. You can be kind. Yeah. Keep the connection, but, you know, to, in the, in the way that is comfortable for you without going, yeah, you are toxic. <laughs> yeah. Because when we see people, you know, like, this person is toxic. And maybe it's our mind that's toxic. Because we have anger and resentment and spite. So we can relate to the people, these people the way we choose, but still appreciate the good qualities and the fact that they are trying and with my parents, for example, over a period of many, many years, we never talked about this thing, you know, that they didn't want to talk to me. Well, they didn't want to talk to me, so we never talked about it. Um, <laughs> but slowly after some years, they began to contact me, and then things kind of healed, and we never spoke about the what happened, but... Uh, in later times, we got along well. So why not? Yeah. And I'd much rather have that um, feeling of being able to connect to those people rather than like, I've got to protect myself from them. We have to protect ourselves from them we have to protect ourselves from our own afflictions. We have to protect ourselves from our own self-centeredness. Yeah? Because as long as we have the seeds of anger, we're going to find somebody to get angry at. Yeah? And it doesn't matter who it is. Our anger can come up with anybody as, you know or anything, as long as the seed of anger is in our mind. Yeah. When we weaken that seed and eventually uh, let it go completely, then people can say and do what they want. Yeah, We don't get angry. We still, you know, we don't do everything they want. We're not best friends with them. 
but uh, we don't have to be angry anymore. And isn't that a relief for us? Because when we hold the grudge against people, we're miserable. Aren't you? Yeah, when you hold a grudge. I come from a family, long lineage of grudge holders on one side of my family. Well, actually, I'm both. And um, I'll tell you about that later. (laughs) But it really made a strong impression on me that I don't want to be like this. Uh, I don't want to relate to other people like this. And you can see, you know, when we have this kind of thing happen with other people, yeah, we are, we have created an image of who the other person is based on something they did in the past. Okay? They may not have always done this or whatever, but based on something, it could be one event, it could be a repeated event, it could be just small things, but we just said, you know, we developed an image of them, then we gave it the label toxic and obnoxious, and then we said, I've got to protect myself from it, So I'm setting up boundaries, and then you become like the former president, and you build walls around yourself. Yeah? And that makes you happy? Yeah? I mean, I saw this, what happened in my family. It doesn't make you happy. It fills you with anger. And who is happy when they're angry? I don't know about you. I am miserable when I'm angry. Anger is not the cause of happiness. Resentment is not the cause of happiness. But when we're able to release that by transforming our own mind, yeah, then we can at least have a pleasant relationship with these people. And at least when we think of them, or when we see them, not instantly go into our preconceived notion based on who we thought they were even years ago. Yeah? My family, you hold grudges, not just from yesterday, but from decades ago. And somebody did this decades ago, and you develop an image of them so that that's all they are, that's all they ever will be is that person, as if they are now permanent. Okay, so we're completely, you know, all this talk about impermanence is very nice, except this person I can't stand as permanent, and they can't change. And they're hopeless. And the relationship is hopeless. And they're toxic, and I'm staying away. And that's all there is to it. And don't tell me, you know, that it's good for me to make amends, because I don't want to. I'm happy the way I am. (laughs) Okay. 
So look at how the mind creates images and solidifies them. Yeah. And then can't shake them off. And realize, you know, why are we studying about impermanence? Here, the first quality of the first of the of the sixteen attributes of the four truths, first one, impermanence. Why are we studying? Because that is the medicine that will help us overcome all this stuff. We see that we're impermanent, the other person's impermanent, we're affected by causes and conditions, they're affected by other factors. So we create some space in our minds. I was working, I'm trying, this is just an introduction to the talk, but somehow it's becoming a long introduction. Um, but anyway, so I remember one time, uh, you know, working with somebody else. Uh, he was a, a mediator, and I was learning some mediation. And we were going to a meeting of a Buddhist organization, and we decided to like, uh, try something with the organization, uh, and we arranged to have a session, and, uh, and we thought it, it would be something helpful for them. So, just before our session, yeah, the coordinator of the, uh, of the conference, uh, came and said, we're very sorry, but we don't have time for your presentation. Now, I didn't say anything, but inside I said a whole lot. Okay, what? Five minutes before somebody's making a presentation, you tell them you've canceled it after we've put in all this effort to arrange it? Who do you think you are doing that to us when we've come here with a good intention to benefit your conference? And you're just cutting us out. <laughs> yeah. So I realized, so this is somebody uh, that I saw at various meetings of this organization that I was a part of. You know, I do not like him. Absolutely not. Hello. <laughs> you know, I just had this horrible negative view of him. And he's the one who's organizing everything in charge. It's like, oh, this person. And then one day, yeah. So this is, by the way, a Buddhist organization headed by my teachers. So being a good disciple, I decided to bear a grudge against somebody else in the organization. That is just what my teacher wants among his disciples, isn't it? For them to dislike each other and make create permanent stereotypes of each other. Yeah. So at some point, I realized, you know, 
I have a stereotype of this guy based on a conversation that took maybe three to five minutes. His telling us that our thing was canceled. Based on, you know, he was like 40-something, 50 at that time. So based on his whole life, the only time that mattered were those three minutes when he talked to me. The rest of his life doesn't count towards him being a nice person. Only those three minutes when he didn't do what I wanted him to do and did what I didn't want him to do. And for that, he is going to pay. Of course, he didn't know it. He didn't suffer from it. I suffered. Yeah? Because I made him like a little cartoon figure, expecting that every time I related to him, he would say, you know, your activity is canceled. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, or he would be obnoxious in one way or another. And then I realized, you know, I'm not giving this guy a chance. In fact, I'm not even relating to him as he is. I'm relating to him as a cartoon character that I've created. And that's not fair on my part. Hmm? So I think we often do this with certain people in the press as well, especially <clears throat> certain politicians. Uh, you know, they become like cartoon characters to us. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is that they often reinforce that because what we see is how they're doing their political stunts. We don't see them on a personal level. Okay, we only see them on TV, you know, or on the internet nowadays, going, yeah. Uh, but we're not relating to them as real human beings. They're cartoon figures. And so we dismiss them, and we can't stand them. And all their followers, likewise. All those other people, they're all alike, every single one of them. Yeah, they're partisan, they're close-minded. Yeah, they're ruining the country. Every single person who's a follower of that jerk, you know, is every, every single one of them actually identical? Yeah, if we met them in a different situation, we might actually like them. Yeah, they might actually save our life sometime. But when we create cartoon figures and stereotypes, we shut ourselves off. Okay, So this is one use of meditating on impermanence because we come to see that our image is frozen in time and it's not looking at the whole person even at that moment. And we're not considering their other qualities, and we're not considering that they can change. Okay, let's continue with the quote from the distortions of the mind. Oh, I'm sorry, there are questions beforehand. 
So how does one live who truly understands impermanence in their heart, not just intellectually? Well, I think I just gave one example, (laughs) okay? But another example is this person is quite aware in their lives of what is important and what isn't important. And more than their possessions or anything else, they cherish their time. Because the the time they have is the most precious thing because they can use it to practice the Dharma. So they don't want to waste their time getting upset about stupidagios because they realize, you know, their life is is in the process of disappearing. And who wants to use their time for that in that way? So these people tend to be quite alive, quite uh, present, you know, when you're with them. And, uh, and they don't waste their time. Okay. So is the suffering we experience from losing something uh, dear to us caused because we don't realize death is impermanent too? It's The primary cause is attachment. Why do we grieve when we lose something or someone that is very dear to us? Because we're attached to it. Okay? Why are we attached Okay, well, one reason is we see it as inherently existent. Another reason is that we see it as permanent, and we think it's not going to change, and we think our relationship with it is not going to change. So this is why um, meditation on impermanence is a very good help to overcome uh, attachment. Okay, let's go back to um, distortions of the mind. So verse 2 on page 20. Such people are bound by the yoke of Mara. So Mara is the personification of distraction, ignorance, whatever takes us away from living a meaningful life. So they're bound by the yoke of Mara and do not reach security from bondage. So bondage is samsara. The real security we find is nirvana. Okay, so they don't reach nirvana when the four distortions are overwhelming their minds. So beings continue in samsara going repeatedly from birth to death and then birth to death and again birth to death. Yeah. So you would think after beginning us lifetimes in samsara, we might say, been there, done that. Yeah, I want to get off the merry-go-round. But attachment prevents us from seeing that we're on this ridiculous merry-go-round. Yeah, where we're miserable, you know, where we are subject to the three kinds of dukkha. But when the Buddhas arise in the world and send forth a brilliant light, they reveal this teaching that leads to the stilling of dukkha. 
So there's hope. When the Buddhas appear in the world, they don't sit, just sit there. Yeah, don't think Buddha is this statue and he just sits there all the time. Yeah, the Buddhas are active. That's the whole reason they became Buddhas. Of course, we don't know who's a Buddha and who isn't. Yeah, and we don't know what kind of thing is due to the enlightened activity of a Buddha and what isn't. Yeah, but the Buddhas are active in the world. And especially when they uh, reveal this teaching, the Buddha turned the, the Dharma wheel. He gave the teachings. The lineage exists. Uh, and then if we pr- listen and practice, then we too can attain nirvana, the stilling of dukkha. And so the, you know, being born at a time, a historical time when the Buddha has appeared, and not only appeared, but taught, and not only taught, but the lineage exists now, we are extremely lucky and fortunate, and that's one of the conditions of a precious human life. So hearing it, wise people regain their sanity. Okay, we listen to the Buddhist teachings, and especially about impermanence, Dukkha, selflessness, or not-self, is another translation term for it. And seeing what is foul is foul. Okay? And through that, we regain our sanity. We are able to just look at things in a realistic way. So they see the impermanent as impermanent, and what is Dukkha as Dukkha. They see what is not-self as not-self, and the unattractive as unattractive. By acquiring the right view, they overcome all dukkha. Okay? So that's why, you know, especially whenever you, you study the four truths, these four attributes of, of true dukkha are the ones that are emphasized more than all the others because they are so pertinent to our lives and so pertinent for changing our minds. So the four attributes of true dukkha counteract the four distorted conceptions. Understanding the first two attributes, okay, impermanence and dukkha, prepares us to realize the last two, which are empty and selfless. Uh, Because those last two are the main antidotes that bring about true cessation. So even within these first four characteristics of true dukkha, you have the meaning of all four truths. Okay. While our physical and mental aggregates are pinpointed as an example of true dukkha, because they are the basis of designation of the person. The explanation pertains to everything conditioned by afflictions and karma. Okay, so remember we talked about, we can talk about the five aggregates in terms of the person, our personal body and mind. That's the basis of designation for I. And we can also talk about the five aggregates as one way to classify all impermanent phenomena. Okay. 
So first, we're going to go through the, uh, the four attributes in more detail now. So each one has like a syllogism, a clear statement of what it is and why. So the physical and mental aggregates are impermanent because they undergo continuous momentary arising and disintegration. Okay, so those of you who have studied syllogisms, what's the subject? Physical and mental aggregates. What's the predicate? Are impermanent. What's the reason? Because they undergo continuous momentary arising and disintegration. Okay. What is, uh, does the subject concord with the reason? What would that look like? Yeah, so the phys okay, go ahead. The physical and mental aggregates undergo continuous momentary rising and disintegrating. Okay, is that true? Yeah. And what's the pervasion? Go ahead. Uh, whatever is momentary. What is whatever undergoes continuous momentary arising and disintegrating is necessarily impermanent. Yeah. Okay. And what's the counterprovision? Whatever is not impermanent is necessarily not undergoing continuous momentary arising and disintegrating. Yeah. Disintegration. Okay. So whatever is permanent does not undergo continuous momentary arising and disintegration. Okay. So it's a concise statement, you know. And it, it looks easy, but you have to really think about it. Yeah. What does it mean to undergo continuous momentary arising and disintegrating? What does that really mean? So overwhelmed by ignorance, we apprehend transient things such as our bodies, relationships, and possessions, as unchanging, stable, and enduring, and expect them to remain the same and always be there. We also think that they're going to be predictable, because they're permanent. They don't change. They're not going to be altered. We do not feel that we are going to die, at least not any time soon. Yeah, 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 everybody dies, but not me, at least not for another few hundred years. And all the people who, who between now and tomorrow morning who are going to die, none of them, when they wake up this morning, think today is the day I'm going to die. They all think, maybe not today, it'll be another day. Believing that we are the same person we were yesterday, we expect our lives to be constant and predictable. We are surprised by a car accident or a sudden change in our conditions at work. We are totally astonished when there's a pandemic, even though, 
Yeah, the government, at least under Obama, had made plans for a pandemic. And scientists had been telling us for a long time there would be future pandemics. But when there was a pandemic, it was like, huh? You know, those are things that happened in the Middle Ages. Yeah, like in 1910 or 1918, you know. Those, those things don't happen now. <laughs> and yet here we are living in, in the midst of one. But because we don't expect these kinds of things and we expect uh, our normal life to continue being normal, when a pandemic comes, we completely reject the reality of it. And this should not be like this. The universe, our world, should definitely not be like this. And so I'm going to continue acting like this does not exist. Because anyway, it's all a big hoax. So I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not mask. I'm not going to get vaccinated. I'm not going to keep social distance. I'm going to have my normal, regular life and just tune this thing out. Because anyway, it's just a, a, a radical leftist conspiracy. Yeah? So some people reject the pandemic that way. Other people, you know, they accept, oh, there's a pandemic. But then they grieve for their normal life. Yeah. What is your normal life? Okay, I realized, you know, th through doing some reading, that most people's social life, at least single people, revolves around meeting other people at bars. So it's much social life revolves around alcohol. You go out for a drink together, okay? Or you go out for a smoke together. Yeah, you do something with drugs and al or alcohol together. And now you can't do that. And you have to, you know, make some other arrangements. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we and your, your kids, your kids who you love dearly, who you wish you had more time to spend with them, now they're at home, and you want them to be back at school. Yeah? And you want to be able to go out and do what? What's your normal life? <laughs> Buddhism? Go, go to the gym. Oh, yeah. You want to go to the gym, and you can't. And you want to go golfing. Shopping, yeah, and you want to go shopping, and you can't, yeah? Travel, you can't do that, huh? Church, can't do that. Well, not everybody wants to go to church, but enough people do. So all the things that you consider important in your life, well, not all the things, 
yeah, but most, many of them, then you, you know, to stay safe, you, you can't do. So in, instead of saying, I want to protect myself, I want to protect my family and the people around me, so I'm not going to do those things, we say, I can't do them. Oh. And we feel uh, like it's a big burden putting upon, put on us. When actually we can use the situation to develop so many new talents and ways of thinking and make different connections with people. But we miss out on that because we're too busy rejecting impermanence. So we were surprised by a car accident or a sudden change in our conditions at work. You notice I, I, this book was wrote and written before the pandemic. And so there was no put thing in the sentence or having a pandemic. Yeah. Or having your electricity go out. You know, every time our electricity goes out, we're like, oh, why is that happening? Yeah. As a result of holding what is impermanent to be permanent, we don't prepare for death or future lives by avoiding harmful actions and engaging in constructive ones. So we just ignore the law and functioning of karma and its results. Because, you know, we're too stuck in this moment. We're living for this moment. There's two meanings for living of this moment, because this is the new thing, you know, when you have your mindfulness app, you want to live in the present moment. Yeah. So living in the present moment has come to mean enjoy all of your objects of attachment as much as you can. Okay. In a Buddhist sense, living in the present moment means be aware of what is important in the big picture and make your life meaningful. Because the sense pleasures come and go like that, don't they? You know, what your normal life con- consisted of, do, you know, those things are over very quickly. So I'm not saying you have to do some ascetic trip, but, you know, let's be safe because we care about others and we care about ourselves. Okay? Mm-hmm. Telling ourselves we will practice Dharma later when we have more time, we waste our precious human lives. So before the pandemic, we were too busy to set up a daily meditation practice, to come to Dharma things, because we were too busy with work and family and our social life. Then there's the pandemic. You know, now, too, we can't practice Dharma because, you know, we're stuck in our houses and we can't do this and that. So I I realized that it was so cute when I, I was teaching at a Dharma center in Seattle. And I noticed 
that whenever people got married, they stopped practicing the Dharma. They were too busy. Whenever they got divorced, they also stopped practicing the Dharma. You know? So when they were married, I'm too busy because I have a spouse and a family. And then when you're divorced and you don't have those things anymore, then you're still too busy. Yeah. So course impermanence is perceptible by our senses. The sun sets. A building is constructed and later decays. Babies become adults and then die. All of these course changes happen due to subtle impermanence, changes occurring in each moment. These subtle changes are built into the nature of conditioned things. No other external factor is necessary to make things arise and cease in each moment. Okay, so that's their nature. So we don't tend to be aware of subtle impermanence because it's the rising and ceasing in each moment. But it's because things arise and cease in each moment that you get this accumulation of moments that then brings what we call a course change, the change that we can see with our senses and detect. So um, some of you... Uh, you know, Prince Philip died. So, you know, what's in the press so much? All this thing about Prince Philip's life. Have you looked at his pictures? Yeah? So this is reminding me when I was a kid and I used to look at, at old family um, photo albums, you know. And there's your parents when they were kids. And like, how is that possible? So, you know, showing pictures of the Queen and Prince Philip when they were young. And, you know, now you look and you, you wouldn't, you know, if you didn't know that they were in the same continuum, they look very different than they did then, okay? And you look back and, oh, they were so young, young. What a beautiful couple looking adoringly at each other's eyes. You know, what do they call it? The royal romance. And then you look at the picture of both of them that are old, and you go, what happened? How is it possible that somebody looked like this and now looks like this? How did that happen? Yeah? Do you ever think about that when you look at old family photos? Think about what your parents were like when they were teenagers or in their 20s. And then you look at them now. Yeah. Of course, when we look at ourselves, we still look young and attractive. We know that, even when you're in your 80s and 90s. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. But, you know, this is the gross change that is built upon moment-by-moment-by-moment change. So here we are, we're building a Buddha hall. So we're excited, we're constructing things. Yeah, But from the moment we start the construction, the building is also in in the process of decaying and falling apart. 
So then you might say, well, why are we building if, if it's only going to fall apart? Okay. Well, in this case, it's going to serve a useful purpose because in, in between, it's going to give people a chance to hear the Dharma teachings and practice the Dharma teachings and create merit and purify. So it's worth building it, even though someday it's going to fall apart. But then sometimes we look at other things we do and we say, if it's only going to fall apart, you know, do I really need to do it? And some things we still say, yes, I do need to do. Yeah. But then we do, and we do it wholeheartedly, but without thinking that it's going to last forever, and so without being attached to it. Okay? So, for example, if we build the Buddha Hall, and then we hope that, you know, we take lots of pictures, and we have a whole storyboard about building it, and there are pictures and our names, you know, and maybe we put all, we carve the names of all the benefactors in the side of the wall. I've been to certain temples where they do this. Yeah, you've seen that too. And then even though we're dead, our names will still be there. And other people in future generations will come and they will see that we help build this building. And that gives us a sense of, well, I'm going to be appreciated. Yeah, but when all these people in the future come and see our names and our pictures, where are we going to be? In what realm are we going to be born? Are we going to be around to enjoy other people saying, oh, they were so kind, they were so generous, they worked so hard. Are we going to be around to listen to all that? Yeah, what realm are we going to be in? Okay. So then you see, yeah, trying to make yourself famous and have a legacy after you die of what meaning does it have for yourself to, to, you know, get some glory? It's like nothing. Yeah. What means more is to purify the mind, create merit, plant lots of seeds of the Dharma in our mind stream. Yeah. So that maybe we can come back and be a human being and use the building in a future life. Or maybe be in a pure land in a future life. Okay. But not come back to the abbey as a stink bug or a beetle or one of the gazillion ants or a turkey. Yeah. Just think, you know, somebody who has clairvoyance. There are those people who built the Buddha Hall. Look at them. And then that one was reborn as this turkey. That one was reborn as that turkey. <laughs> yeah. If we don't create merit and purify, 
Yeah. Then what they can do is take pictures of us as turkeys and put them right next to the picture of us as human beings with a warning, you know, when you're attached to fame and reputation, this is what happens. Arising is something new coming into existence. Abiding is the continuation of something similar. And ceasing is the disintegration of what was. These three occur simultaneously in each moment. From the moment something arises, it is changing and ceasing. There is no way to halt this process or take a time out and say, look, can things just remain the same for a while so I can catch up? Okay. So this is interesting to think about. Arising, abiding, and ceasing all occur at the same time. But our mind usually thinks, first you have something arising. First, arising means it comes into existence, it's produced. Then it stays the same for a while. And then it disintegrates. Okay. So we're thinking in terms of, of course impermanence. You build the building, it's exactly the same, and then it ceases. But if you look, okay, is it exactly the same moment to moment? No, even within that, there's gross impermanence. The pipe bursts, yeah, the termites move in. <laughs> What else happens? Okay, the electricity goes out. You have a flood in the bathroom. A tree falls. A what? A tree falls. Oh, a tree falls on your building. Yeah. So even within that time when we think something's staying the same, still there's gross impermanence happening, let alone the subtle impermanence that's moment by moment by moment. So His Holiness, uh, he doesn't use the example here, but he often uses it in, uh, in teachings. We see the sun rise, it rises in that direction, and it sets over here, at least in the equinox. <laughs> in the winter, it rises there and sets there. In the summer, it arises here and sets here. Yeah, so even that isn't fixed. But, um, you know, how... Can the how can the sun arise, which is gross impermanence, we see it, and set, which is also gross impermanence? Because in each moment, it is moving across the sky. Or actually, the earth is revolving around it. <laughs> or the earth is revolving around its own axis. Okay. So that's what's actually happening moment by moment. But because we don't notice that, we think the earth is standing still. We think the sun is moving. And, and it, you know, we forget just these momentary changes is why we have a day arising, ceasing. Yeah. So because everything changes in each moment, 
There is no stability or security to be found in samsara. Then why do we keep looking for it? (laughs) Yeah. I remember talking with um, one friend of mine, and we were catching up after a long time. And I was at such a place in, in my life where I didn't have a stable home. And, uh, and you know, I said, I made a comment like, you know, uh, at least right now I feel like I'm in free fall. And then I said, actually, my whole life has been in free fall. And it's a fiction that it hasn't, that it's been at some time or another stable. Because we never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and so actually, yeah, we are in free fall. So that, that, you know, when that hit me, I thought, okay, then my job is to learn to be comfortable to be in free fall. Yeah. Instead of trying to grab onto something and make it permanent, which is impossible, to just relax and be in free fall. So I made that determination. I haven't always lived up to it because things happen and I'm like, what's this doing happening right now? This is not in my calendar. You know, please, if you want to have a catastrophe, reschedule it when it's convenient for me and I'm warned beforehand. Okay. But life is not life that, is it? Yeah. So understanding this gives us a more realistic view of life. This, in turn, helps us to release attachment to samsaric enjoyments and birth in samsara in general, and it frees our mind to seek a more reliable happiness that comes from dharma practice. Because the more we familiarize our mind with with the four truths and integrate them in our lives, the more our view about life changes and starts to correspond more with what reality is so that we stop fighting reality and we stop creating cartoon figures out of other people and instead we can live a very vibrant vibrant life. So thinking about how things are always arising, abiding and ceasing in the exact same moment it just blows my mind because it totally takes the meaning out of all three of those verbs because it's impossible for something to abide and cease at the same time, let alone abide. So I think it's really pointing at emptiness. I mean, and I think that if you truly realize subtle impermanence, you will see the emptiness of the object because it's not even there at any point in time. So subtle impermanence, we talked about this before, it helps you in understanding emptiness, but it isn't the realization of emptiness. They're two separate realizations, okay? But it definitely helps because, like you said, you see what is there an essence, a fixed essence, that carries from one moment to the next of this object. What are you going to point to as a fixed essence that is the same from one moment to the next moment? 
Um, someone online says, abiding is the continuation of something similar. Could you please expand and or give examples? Does it mean simply changing? Yeah, it, because when you're, when something is arising, okay, when something is arising, I think there's two ways to look at it. One way is something is arising, which means that what arose before is, uh, or what, how to say, this is arising, so there's a continuation of what existed in the previous moment that is now called abiding. And then there's a further continuation of what existed in the previous moment that is now called disintegrating. And all these three happen at the same time. So it's not first you have abiding, there's concrete abiding, then uh, concrete arising, then abiding, then disintegrating. Okay? But while something is, is arising, yeah, one way to see it is something else is changing, you know, it's a continuum of, of what was and something else is ceasing. But actually, at this, when we talk about one object, while something is arising, it's also a continuation of what it was before. When the seed is starting to sprout, it's a continuation of the seed, yeah? And it's also the seed is disintegrating at that same time. Okay. So it, what, what you get to is you can never actually find a present moment. Yeah. For all our talk about living in the present moment, we cannot find a present moment. And I think we're going to come to that soon. So I won't explain it now. But if we don't get to it soon, remind me and I'll explain it. Anything else or should I continue? Okay, I'll go on. So uh, the second attribute, the aggregates are unsatisfactory by nature because they are under the control of afflictions and karma. So whatever is under the control of afflictions and karma is unsatisfactory by its very nature. Okay? And when you think of something arising under the influence of afflictions and, and polluted karma, there's nothing pure and joyful about afflictions and polluted karma. So why do we think that the things that arise under their control are going to be pure and joyful and, you know, give us lasting happiness? So believing what is unsatisfactory by nature, okay, starting out food. Food is unsatisfactory by nature? No, it's not. When I get the food that I like and I get enough of it, my belly's full, I feel very satisfied. Right? For how long? 
How long do you feel satisfied? A few minutes? And the satisfaction, yeah, of having your belly exactly full enough, not too much, not too little, you're starting to get hungry again every single moment after you reach that moment of satisfaction because your, your body is digesting the food. So you're starting to get hungry again. So where's the real satisfaction from eating? Okay, possessions. Yeah, my new device, whatever it is. I love getting a new device. Do they have a new iPhone out? You know, I they do. Okay, I I, th- I just read they have a new what is it? Surface something computer. You know, so there's a new one of those out, and then they have new headphones out and all sorts of new kinds of cameras to attach to your whatever it is you want so there's a clearer picture of yourself and the other person and you know better links and everything is new and modern and revised so your possessions are the latest up to date Okay, they bring real satisfaction. Do they? Is your latest gadget, when you're trying to get it to run the way you want it to, with all of your um, uh, settings in it, does it correspond? Does it do what you're telling it to do? And the moment you have it, it's in the process of becoming an antique because the company is developing the latest new thing while you just bought the latest new thing. (laughs) Okay. So is this unsatisfactory? Yes. Because they have you hooked. Yeah, they have you hooked. You want the latest thing because all your friends have the latest thing and you don't want to be out of it. You know, come on. You're still using a flip phone? Or you look at somebody like me who doesn't even have a cell phone? How do you survive without a cell phone? Yeah, because you can't do anything but without a cell phone now. I go online and I try and I have to do certain things for the Abbey, and they want to be able to text me special passcodes. Well, believe it or not, people who wrote this, I don't have a device that, you know, I can flick open and get my text. She had to spend a whole afternoon arranging something, 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 so that I could do this. And next time I have to fill it in and a new thing, I'm going to call her because I can't remember how to do it. And which there's so many different phone numbers. There's my phone number and then the phone number of this flip phone and then another phone number in North Carolina. I don't know what phone number. This is just to get a text message. Why can't they email me? 
you know, okay, I know I'm 70 years old, but I know how to do email. Yeah, why can't you do that? Okay, so it's unsatisfactory. You go and you get Botox. <laughs> you go to the gym and you finally make your body look the way you want. You finally buy the kind of house you've always dreamed of having. Yeah, does it bring total satisfaction? So, reputation. Reputation, that's what will bring me satisfaction. My picture on that board saying that I contributed to the Buddha Hall. Okay? Satisfaction. I traveled in China with um, some of my Chinese friends in the mid-90s, and we stopped at a tea star stall to... Um, get some tea. And there were pictures of the Gang of Four on the wall, because you remember the Gang of Four used to be the big, famous people with a big reputation who had power in communist China. But at that time, they had been out of power. Yeah. And uh, you know, we were looking at it, and here's these people who were so famous and had so much power. And it's like they're the top of the world in their own eyes. And one of my friends made a comment about, well, I wonder what realm he's born into now. Because they use their reputation and power to harm people. So no satisfaction from that. And also, as soon as you are well-known and famous, somebody is going to criticize you. Yeah? I mean, you just look at everybody we read about. What, what are most of our uh, things about in, in the news? Criticism of what somebody's doing. Because somebody's maybe praising it, somebody else is criticizing it. Okay, so reputation, friends, relatives. Have other people brought you lasting, consistent satisfaction? No, yeah. Sometimes you think, well, I'm gonna have a kid and I can, you know, I can make the kid grow up in a certain way and that will make me feel real satisfied, yeah? To have this child that I love, that loves me, I will give them everything that I didn't have. I will help them to grow up to be everything that I wasn't. Okay? So take my parents, for example. They had that dream, yeah? World War II was over, we're gonna, Settle down, have a family, wonderful kids. They gave us everything they could. And they wound up with me. And I was not the kind of daughter they had imagined. Yeah. I did not grow up to be what they wanted me to be. Okay. So all the satisfaction 
they thought they were going to get from having a kid. Maybe when I was really little, I was charming when I wasn't screaming and being a brat. But as an adult, I am not, you know, I did not turn out to be the daughter that they could brag about to their friends. And that's what I was supposed to be. Okay. And they got me instead. And even when I was little, my mother so much wanted a daughter who cared about clothes and who cared about hair, you know, who wanted to go to the beauty shop, who wanted to wear really nice clothes. And she got me. Yeah? <laughs> exactly. What did I do to deserve this? You know, she wants to wear jeans with patches. She doesn't want to wear pretty clothes. She hates going to the to the beauty shop, even, you know, when you have to go because it's a special family event, you know, so you, you got to go. And they, oh, it's so obnoxious, you know? I, I mean, the... They wanted a, a different kind of daughter, and they, they got me. Yeah. So my sister likes those things, but she also did things that they didn't like. <laughs> yeah. Our poor parents. Yeah. But my brother, he's the one who became the doctor. Yeah. Of course, he moved uh, 2,000 miles away, and they weren't very happy about that. <laughs> and his daughter, when she was a baby, bit my mother. <laughs> that wasn't endearing. <laughs> pleasure you're supposed to get from your grandchildren. <laughs> she got <laughs> teeth marks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Our bodies. Yeah. Are our bodies totally, uh, you know, giving us lasting uh, pleasure? Yeah, that that doesn't work either, you know. It's like we run from here to there, here to there, doing this, you know, the latest thing is going to do it for us. And sometimes we come into Dharma with that same expectation. You know, it's like, wow, I'm going, I'm sitting at the feet of these holy beings. Wait until I tell my friends about this. And they're teaching me how to concentrate and attain enlightenment. Oh, I feel their blessing. Yeah. Until, you know, something happens and then you don't like them either. Or you find out that it's going to take three countless great eons when you thought it was going to take three days. <laughs> Okay, so we think all these things are actual pleasure and happiness. 
So we jump into the world of transitory pleasures, expecting lasting joy, viewing our bodies to be a source of great pleasure. It's so wonderful to have COVID. It's so wonderful to have kidney disease or heart disease. Our bodies give us so much pleasure, don't they? But before that, we think our bodies do give us a lot of pleasure. So we run around giving pleasure to the body. We expend great effort to secure and experience sensual delights. In doing so, we consume more than our fair share of the Earth's resources and spend a lot of time chasing illusions. Do we ever connect are using more than our fair share of the earth of the earth's resources with our chasing of transitory pleasures for this body you know how much do we connect those two and how much do we just say oh yes we're using more than our our fair share of resources so you stop driving here and there wherever you want and you recycle and these big companies should not dump their stuff where it's not but I need to go here and I need to go there and I I want this product and I want that product we don't always connect it yeah I was in uh, Mexico one time and I was having lunch with uh, two people who were uh, professors of ecology at a university in Mexico. And they told, you know, so they're people who, they look at the big picture and they see what's going on and, you know, what needs to be done. But they were telling me that one day their daughter came home from school and said, Mom and Dad, we need to recycle things. And they were so surprised Yeah, because their daughter said, you know, we need to care for the planet by recycling. And here are two people who were ecologists who never thought of recycling in their own home. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is how all of us are. You know, we don't always connect the dots. Okay, in actuality, our bodies have constant aches and pains and are seldom comfortable for long. And by now I've gone over time and you're thinking, when is this lady gonna shut up because my back hurts and my legs hurt and I wanna go pee pee. But we have one more sentence to go. So if we saw our bodies more realistically, we would keep them healthy in order to use them to practice the Dharma but we would not expect true happiness from them. Okay, so we take care of our body, we use it in a wise, valuable way, but we don't cling to it, expecting more out of it than it can give us. So with that, and we will dedicate.